0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale
1: University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for today's podcast is Dr. Jerome Williams, the F.J. Haney Centennial Professor in Communication with a joint appointment at the Center for African and African American Studies at the University of Texas. Dr. Williams received his undergraduate training at the University of Pennsylvania and his Ph.D., in business, business administration, marketing, and social psychology at the University of Colorado. He's known widely for his work on marketing. Uh, in our case, food marketing is of particular interest, but he's done work much more broadly than that and has, a, has special expertise in issues of marketing to targeted groups. So, Jerome, welcome. Thank you, Kelly. Very hap- happy to have you here, especially given the uh, importance of food marketing in the overall picture of obesity in the united states and elsewhere and also all the controversy that exists around it so to bring some clarity to it will be really good so let me start with a broad question <clears throat> people have different impressions of how powerful marketing is overall and i know it's it's that you know there's a lot to this that you just can't answer simply but i'd like your impression is marketing something that really has a profound impact on human behavior or is it less than some people might think?
0: Well there's no question that marketing has a tremendous impact in terms of persuasion and changing behavior and having an impact and influencing people. The question is how precise is it? And Some people would like to think that it's really like a hypodermic hypodermic needle impact where you just inject marketing and advertising into society and you can pretty much persuade people to do one thing or another. And it's not quite that simple. There are a lot of factors. Uh, It depends on not only the amount of uh, advertising marketing, but also the quality of it, the creativity you use. Uh, It resonates with different types of audiences in different ways, and so it's a little bit more complicated than just uh, advertising something and expecting people to do what you are trying to accomplish.
1: So how good are the marketers at doing what they do? I've heard different reports about this. Some people think that they're incredibly good at shifting around consumer behavior, and others say that there's a lot more experimentation and sort of instinct and guesswork to it than we might believe.
0: Well, There there are two schools of thought on that. If you look at the amount of marketing that's being spent, the amount of advertising, and you measure it, and you look at the impact, there are certain generalizations we can make, and we can say, these things tend to work. But also, there are other areas where you can spend marketing dollars, you can spend advertising, and you'll see sales go in the opposite direction. In fact, there are some classic examples where uh, you can look at certain types of advertising, which were the most known, the most liked, and yet sales actually went down. Then you can have other types of advertising, which is really kind of dull, boring, doesn't win any awards, and sales go up. So marketing and advertising tend to accomplish things like inform, persuade, remind. And depending on where the product is and the product lifecycle, it depends on where where you are and what we call the hierarchy of effects, Whether you're trying to get people to actually commit and buy something, or whether you're just trying to let them know about the attributes of the product it can accomplish different things.
1: I know that the food companies have been under attack for their marketing practices, especially those directed at children. And one of the defenses they have is that marketing just moves people to choose one brand over another within a category. So. The beverage companies might do a lot of marketing, but they might say it just leads us to leads consumers to pick our brand over somebody else's brand, but doesn't increase desire for that category of food, namely sugared beverages. The same could be said of sugared cereals or fast food or whatever it is. What do you think about that?
0: Well actually marketing and, and advertising techniques they accomplish both. It's what we call stimulating primary demand versus selective or secondary demand. And if your product is in the early stages, uh, let's say you're marketing solar systems or you're marketing uh, you know an iPad, something that's relatively new to the marketplace, one of the things it might accomplish is just to stimulate primary demand for that type of product. But if a product is in a more mature, category like food products uh, tend to be. Uh, A lot of times uh, what you're trying to do is to get your advertising marketing to prefer brand A over brand B. So it's not one or the other, it's really both and Mm -hmm. depending on uh, where the product happens to be in the product life cycle.
1: Well let's take a couple of food categories that would certainly fall into mature listing as you said. So let's take sugared beverages, Children's cereal and fast foods, as an example, these things have been advertised for years and years and years. People know what the main brands are, certainly. So the fact that there's so much advertising for these products, um, could it, can the companies legitimately argue that all that advertising doesn't push up the desire for fast foods as a category? uh for sugared beverages as a category for sugared cereals as a category
0: well it would certainly be difficult to argue that it only does that because uh, let's say you come out with some new type of sandwich at a fast food place and uh, it's some type of gigantic enormous sandwich that hasn't been on the market before so in a sense it's a it's a new product but at the same time it's a variation of a product that's already on the market so if people say hey i'm going to try that uh, then obviously not only are they trying that new product that hasn't been on the market before, but they're adding to the total of sales of that particular uh, franchise or company or, or brand. So it really accomplishes both. Uh, so when, when advertisers or marketers say it's only brand-specific, uh, it's really difficult to defend that and say it doesn't really have an impact also on the product class.
1: All right. Thank you. Um, more, the marketing landscape has changed a lot over the years. If I think back to when I was a boy, there was very little marketing at all. Mainly, as what I recall, were advertisements for children's cereals on Saturday morning cartoon television. But obviously, things are different now. How has marketing changed over the years? And has it changed in the type of marketing, the amount of marketing, or both?
0: Well, I would say a good word to describe it is chaos. <laughs> Basically, things are changing so rapidly and uh, new techniques and viral marketing and guerrilla marketing and stealth marketing uh, it's changing in such a way that you you basically have to look at it as trying to hit a moving target and you can take for example in the tobacco industry for example uh, where uh, years ago when advertising was banned on television a lot of those dollars shifted to other types of uh... marketing and today we see dollars shifting in the same way so you don't have the traditional measured type of media but it's shifting in other ways which are very difficult to to track in fact i call it kind of flying under the the radar so to speak but that's really what's happening in the in the marketplace and then you have social media and you have situations where consumers are controlling the content of the promotion through social media so it's and, and then advertisers are trying to captive uh capitalize on that so it's becoming really kind of a chaotic state where you really have to keep your hand and finger on the pulse to really stay in the game
1: so the types have changed for certain and it's probably hard to track the exact amount given that some of these things are pretty hard to measure uh, but but can you make any general um, statements about the amount of marketing people are exposed to now compared to several decades ago? Well, I think it's becoming difficult from a measurement standpoint because years ago when we used to measure
0: marketing and advertising exposure, we would say, well, how many hours of television did the person watch? How many hours of radio did the person uh, listen to? And now today, particularly with the younger generation, we're engaged in so much multitasking. You know, if you have kids, you look at your... Uh, son or daughter are sitting there doing homework and they've got the headphones on and the maybe the video game is in the background and and uh, they're all the televisions going and, and they're processing all of that and we found through our research that uh, younger people are very comfortable with that so it's not really a question of just measuring you know how many hours of television a person is watching uh, and, and there's so many other things if they're engaged in a video game there may be advertising inserted in the video game that they're exposed to so it's just becoming a very very complicated Uh, way of looking at what marketers and advertisers are trying to do. And and going back to the analogy that I often use is what I call the waterbed analogy. It's like when you sit on the edge of a waterbed, you know, the water flows to a different direction and so when you kind of constrain one area of marketing or advertising, you'll see those dollars flow into another area. And so in terms of trying to keep track of what's going on, you just constantly have to see, you know, who's sitting on what part of the waterbed and where those advertising dollars are, are flowing to.
1: You know, there's a particular example that's quite timely in that respect. The um, beverage industry announced recently that they were going to um, restrict the marketing of full sugar products in schools, although they're doing some of that in the United States anyway. But they made a commitment to do this globally. And um, the skeptics of the industry claims might say that uh, industry is getting uh, a bad public relations hit because of marketing through schools to children. And so it's become a liability for them. Hence, they'll pull out of this voluntarily, but simply move their marketing dollars elsewhere. And it's the waterbed analogy that you used. Or another analogy for this is the old arcade game, the whack-a-mole. You know, you knock one down, but other ones are going to pop up. And you end up with just as many as you started with. Right. Um, it sounds like, from what you were saying, that there's every reason to at least be alert to that possibility.
0: Well, you know, th- what I tell people, you know, and I teach marketing and advertising, so many of the techniques that marketers and advertisers are uh, using, I mean, these are probably former students of mine that I've taught, but I understand from the marketer standpoint what they're trying to do, and as I've often said to people, marketers are going to do what marketers do. Uh, but in order to as to use another phrase, to slay the beast, you have to know the nature of the beast. And you have to know that if a company has a product in the marketplace, they're going to try and maximize their profits. Now, there may be certain constraints, uh, legal constraints, policy constraints, et cetera. But at the end of the day, they're going to look for other ways to basically make a profit on that product. And so if you understand that, and you understand the thinking of the marketer, and you know that if they're pulling out of one area, they're certainly going to be looking for another area where they can make up for that.
1: Okay, so that's uh, a good argument for keeping an eye on the whole marketing picture rather than just one piece of it, like schools or television, et cetera. Um, That's very true. Something you mentioned just a few moments ago caught my interest. You talked about some forms of marketing as viral marketing, stealth marketing, and guerrilla marketing. Can you explain what you mean by those terms? Well, what we mean are marketing
0: techniques that if you think of stealth as kind of being hidden, not obvious. Uh, not as intrusive. And let's take, for example, product placements in in movies uh, or product placements on television shows. And if you see a character holding a can of uh, some brand of beverage or eating a particular type of sandwich, uh, fast food sandwich, you might think, well, that just adds realism to the scene. But what a lot of people don't realize is that many times those situations are paid for, uh, but we don't know it's paid for. We just think it's part of the movie or part of the film. And what happens many times, if that's the case, then we may not be as inclined to put up our defenses in terms of processing that kind of information. So if it's stealth, in a sense, we don't see it coming. And and from that perspective, it might even be more effective.
1: So does this say anything about the <clears throat> the ethics or morality of marketing, if you, especially directed at children? So if you think that People have certain cognitive defenses, so they recognize when marketing is occurring. Whatever defense they'd like to apply can kick in, at least if they're aware, if they're being marketed to. And this might be especially true of parents uh, monitoring the marketing that their children are exposed to. But with these viral stealth and guerrilla techniques, is it less likely that parents are able to monitor these kind of things? And does that say anything about, say, the ethics of marketing?
0: It it certainly goes to the part of the ethics issue. In fact, we, we've been doing research at the University of Texas on the ethics of uh, advertising agencies, companies, uh, advertising associations, and for the most part, uh, everyone will say we're trying to do the, the ethical thing and they'll have codes of ethics, et cetera. But what you really have to ask yourself, uh, are they really adhering to their own codes of ethics? And, are we, and we need to hold their feet to the fire because of the standards that they themselves have set. Now, what happens, uh, of course, many times is that uh, you get into areas that are so fuzzy and and because of this chaotic nature of the marketplace, like viral, not viral marketing, but digital marketing. And so, you know, how do you really track that? Uh, and how do you get develop a code of ethics of how much you want to track people's behavior on the internet and then really develop products for that. Now, some people will say, hey, I like that. If I go to amazon.com and I log in and all of a sudden uh, something pops up and says, hey, look, here are 10 books based on the last time you were on amazon.com, some people may like that. Uh, but we still have to ask ourselves the question, how intrusive is it? How much of an invasion of, an invasion of privacy is it? And particularly, as you mentioned, when you get to children, uh, where do you cross the line? And so some of the key research has to determine at what age is it really acceptable to allow these types of techniques uh, for marketers to uh, adhere to. Well, let me end,
1: end this particular podcast with the following question. I've had often you know, thought of the following, and I might be wrong, and, but you're the expert, so tell me if you would. Um if if you look at marketing, especially in the food arena where we are, it seems like it's had a pretty bad impact on the nation's health. Uh, it certainly is driving kids, adults, to eat foods that aren't necessarily so good for them. And that's been proven time and time again in research. So the question is, why hasn't the nation risen up and done something about this? Why aren't there more restrictions on marketing? And part of it is written right into the law. The First Amendment of the Constitution protects religious speech, political speech, and commercial speech. So that's one issue for sure. But public opinion alone could turn this around if it if it were strong enough. But it's not happening. And, and one of the psychological things that I think occurs, but again, please tell me if I'm wrong, is the fact that almost everybody believes they're not affected by marketing, but they think everybody else is. And because of that funny attribution people make, that I'm not affected, why am I not affected? Because I'm strong. Why are other people affected? Because they're weak. And then why should government do anything? Just because people are weak, it's their own fault. Mm -hmm. Does that make any sense? Do you think something like that might be active in the fact that people aren't rising up against this bad influence.
0: Well, I think there are a lot of reasons why people aren't rising up, but I think your approach uh, certainly contributes to understanding why that is. In fact, in... In theory, we call it the third-person effect. There's actually a name for it, which basically says when you ask people uh, how effective is advertising, you, time and time again you get that same response. Well, yeah, advertising is very powerful. It affects uh, everyone else, but you know, I'm not affected by it. So that's what we call the third-person effect. Uh, but you're also, you know, with attribution theory, uh, if you say that you're being affected by advertising, you're maybe you're essentially attributing something to yourself as a weakness. And for the most part, we don't attribute internally weaknesses. We usually attribute externally weaknesses to others. And so from the standpoint of what you're arguing, I can see that as one of the reasons. But I think it's more complicated than that. I think there are a lot of other reasons why uh, a lot of people are allowing perhaps or being a little bit more reluctant to clamp down on advertising industry.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Jerome. This has been very helpful. And Because we'll do another podcast in just a few moments on multicultural marketing, there will be a lot more to say about the topic. So I appreciate you joining us.
0: Well, thank you, Kelly.
1: Our guest today was Dr. Jerome Williams, the F.J. Haney Centennial Professor in Communications at the University of Texas. Please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a variety of resources, including a list of other podcasts that we've recorded with guests who have come to the Rudd Center. Thank you.